Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of CIR Realty Business Mastery. We are here today with Ryan Smith, uh, who's one of our realtors. And has our last name. And has our same We're last all Smiths. name. I believe you have my last name, but- You're right, that's I right. do. Yeah. I do have your last name, you're and right. Written, written across the bottom here somewhere is gonna be Smith, Smith, Smith. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is it awesome. is, it's true. Interview with the Smiths. Ryan has many titles, some that I'm bestowing, but uh, Fantastic Realtor is one of them. Uh, Ryan is also one of our assistant managers, which is awesome, has, has filled in and covered and helped us out with a bunch of stuff that way. So thank you for that. You're He's very a welcome. beekeeper? Thanks for having me. He's a beekeeper. Uh, <gasps> beekeeper is a strong, it's, it's more of a backyard hobby. Dude, I do, you, do you keep bees? I guess oh, I do. Beekeeper. I'm a, yeah, all right, fine. I'm a backyard hobbyist beekeeper. We'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and in addition to being an all-around great guy, Ryan also teaches for the Calgary Real Estate Board, the New Professionals Program, as well as condominiums, um, many other things. But he teaches the condominium specialist program, and Ryan's knowledge around condos is vast. And we know that many people, uh, realtors, sort of struggle now and then with condos. So first of all, Ryan, thank you so much for giving me your time today to come on and share. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm awesome. really happy to be here. I'm really excited about this because I know absolutely none of this. So this is this is kind of fun. <laughs> this is this is kind of fun. If you want an inside secret, I know none of this too. I'm just gonna <laughs> right. make this up for the next 45 minutes or so. So this is gonna be a winging bit, it. This is gonna be a bit different than some of our other sessions because this is I, I want to hear about Ryan's real estate career really quickly. But we are just gonna have like rapid fire questions about condos that we've looked at, the hottest topics, things that are most commonly misunderstood or, or realtors get wrong, Yep. Uh, even clients don't understand. Uh, so, so let's kick us off, Ryan. Tell us a quick snippet, 30 seconds, your real estate career up until today. Yeah. All right, so I got into real estate about uh, seven, eight years ago. Um, I wouldn't say on a whim, but more or less kind of on a whim. It wasn't something that I had ever really planned to do. The opportunity came up for me to um, get into real estate and join a small brokerage at the time. I really liked how that brokerage ran itself, so that's how I got my start. From there, I, I decided very early on that I wanted to try teaching at CREB, in part because I always um, respected some of the instructors that I had at the real estate board. So George Matthews, who unfortunately passed away not yep. that long ago, uh, was a very inspirational sort of mentor to me. Um, but also in part, I've always known about myself that in order to really understand something, I had to be capable of teaching it. So when I was in university, in order to study for a test, I would find an empty classroom that had a whiteboard and I would write down all of the material as if I was teaching a class. Oh, brilliant. So then when I went to write the test, I was confident in knowing that I knew everything because I had taught the material, right? So in part, very early on in my real estate career, I understood that there was this ridiculous amount of knowledge that real estate agents are supposed to have and I knew that the best way to gain that knowledge would be to, to teach it. So I started teaching at CREB, a um, little bit of fake it until you make it for the first probably couple years of doing that, but it's allowed me to accelerate my education level totally. because now I'm asked obviously to stand in front of a room full of my peers and disseminate that same level of knowledge. So then when you, for me when I go to talk to a client, specifically maybe about condominiums, I find that it rolls off my tongue. I don't stumble for words. I, I generally know the answers to you know 90% of the questions that clients have about their condos, uh, and I'm able to share information that they probably don't know about their condos. So, yeah. 
Now, I've been like at CIR. That was like the best answer to that question ever. Thank you, I appreciate ever. that. And obviously, I've been at CIR uh, for about eight months now. Um, I came over with Chloe McCara from our small brokers that we had before. So when yeah. Chloe was bestowed the opportunity to come join CIR, I jumped at the chance. And so here I am. And the rest is Welcome. truly history. Thank you. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we go. This is... The lightning round. This is the lightning round. Are you ready in the hot seat, Ryan? Go. <laughs> All right. All right. Kirsten, kick us off. Okay. I actually... We, I asked you this question yesterday. How do I know if a property is a condo? Okay. So I th I've heard a lot of different realtors say different things about condominiums. I've heard yeah. agents say, you know, if it's more than four townhouses connected, it has to be a condo. Or, you know, these different these different types of ways that you can look at it and say whether or not it's a condominium. I was and, like, does it have an elevator? Right. So, so many things. When people say condo, and I think the general public is going to gravitate to the idea of apartment, right? right. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, a condominium, it's a style of ownership. It's not a style of construction. So it could literally be anything. Um, there are condominiums that are multi-million dollar single detached homes that sit on a parcel of land but the parcel itself is the condominium unit. So I huh. think that it's important for agents and also the general public to understand that condominium, again, condominium ownership is a style of ownership. It has nothing to do with the construction type. It's virtually impossible to look at a building and tell whether it's a condominium or not. Because even if it's a high-rise tower, it doesn't have to be a condominium. It could all be rental units, Purpose for example. Purpose burger rentals, yeah, exactly. absolutely. So, from the outside, it's virtually impossible to tell. As soon as you pull the title for the property, it should be very apparent to you that it's a condominium because the title will look slightly different than um, you know, just fee simple single ownership. There will be a condominium plan number referenced and there will be a legal unit number referenced and then there will be unit factors that are referenced on the condo plan, which I know we're gonna kind of get into, so I'll kind of right. leave it at that. Um, but that's, that's how you tell is really you have to pull the title, you have to figure out what the ownership structure is before you can tell if it's a condo or not. Any style of building can be a condo. Correct. That's it, style of ownership, love it. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay, so tell us about bare land versus conventional, the concept of barely blended condos. Where do people find that out? Give us a quick overview of the difference. Okay, so when I first started taking my education courses at CREB, I was very confused about this whole thing, and I understand that it's a point of confusion for a lot of agents. I was told that there are three styles of condo. There are bare land, there are conventional, and then there's something that was called barely blended. Yes. However, when you go to load a listing on Matrix, barely blended is not a thing. And when you read the Condominium Property Act, barely blended is not a thing. The Condominium Property Act doesn't recognize barely blended condominiums. They say that there are two styles. There's a conventional, and there's a bare land. So let's deal with those, I guess, first, and then we'll bring in this idea of barely blended. Bare land is a two-dimensional uh, unit. It's defined by survey monuments or pins that are in the ground. So the bare land condominium unit is dirt. Creates a lot. Correct. It creates a lot. That's exactly it, right? Well, now, whatever's built on top of that is sort of subsequent. Um, but when you look at a bare land condominium plan, you're going to be looking at a lot of parcels of dirt that are the units that make up that condominium. On the flip side, when you look at a conventional condominium plan, it's a three-dimensional cube that exists in space. So it's going to be defined on the plan by the floors and the walls and the ceilings. Okay? Now, when you're dealing with a conventional plan, you do not require a real property report because the conventional plan 
basically stands in for the real property report. However, when you're dealing with a bare land unit, you do require a real property report. And again, this is a, I think a big confusion for a lot of agents is when do they need a real property report? 100%. When do they not? So bare land, yes. Conventional, no, because the conventional plan doubles as the RPR. Then you get into this concept of barely blended. So barely blended in its simplistic form is just simply it's phased construction. What the developer will do, and it complicates things, and I understand that for agents, but, it, but it's not, it doesn't have to be as complicated as agents make it out to be. The developer will start with bare land units. So they will register a condominium plan at land titles, which creates bare land units of dirt, so lots, right? Then over the course of time, they will redivide those bare land units. And when they redivide those bare land units, most of the time, they create conventional units from that redivision. It's also possible that they create additional bare land units, but generally speaking, they're creating conventional units. Where agents get tripped up a lot is they're reading the plan, and in the heading to the plan, it says a plan of redivision of a bare land unit. They see the word bare land and assuming they're dealing with a bare land condo, when in fact they're dealing with conventional because we're looking at a plan of redivision of the original bare land unit. So there's a lot of confusion uh, as to whether or not I need an RPR or not. Yeah. The question becomes, what have you created in this process? And if what you've created is a conventional unit, you don't require an RPR. If what you've created is a bare land unit, well then you do require an RPR for the reasons that we already said. So, Again, I realize it trips up a lot of agents. Um, it doesn't have to be as complicated as it's made out to be. There's two types of condominiums. Either it's bare land or it's conventional. And this idea of barely blended is simply phased development. It's building out a project in phases rather than doing it all at once. I'm surprised that whoever decided to name it barely blended, like brought that to a group of people and the group of people's like, excellent name for that. And to the point where <laughs> it's become a thing in our industry where yeah. we, we we, we gravitate to this idea that there are three types, that yeah. barely blended is a type of, it's not, it's either conventional or it's bare land. It, or, you know, it could be phased out and blended out through that phasing, but it's gonna be conventional or bare land at the end of things. I wanna just make a note for any Steve. viewers slash listeners that are not in Alberta, obviously the concept of strata is what we're talking about here. Uh, Correct. For condominium ownership. Um, also, I wanna thank our graphics team for that 3D animation that they had that was drawing out the lot and the 3D <laughs> image in space and, and the rendering. <laughs> Just kidding. That'll be, that'll be the future thing. But I, thought, I thought the explanation, I could see this video overlay in my good, head. I know. Like, it? I know. And having like yeah. this 3D space in red and hovering and taking out and showing this interior floor design. <laughs> Anyways, that's it. Okay, we got to keep up. We got a thousand of these things. Okay, to next question. Yes. Why is buying a condominium similar to buying a business? Okay, so by definition, every condominium um, is governed by a corporation. Every condominium corporation is a legal entity. So you have this scenario that exists where you have, you know, there's over 8,000 condominiums in Alberta now. And, you know, some of those are going to be residential, obviously. Some of those are going to be strictly commercial. Some of these might be a mix of both. But at the end of the day, you have these corporations that are governed under the Condominium Property Act, and each one runs as its own little business entity. Now, in this business entity, there are no stocks, there are no, or sorry, I shouldn't say there are no stocks, but there are no dividends that are paid out. Uh, you don't make money off of it necessarily, financially speaking. I mean, obviously you have an asset in there, but 
the structure is such that there's a board of directors that's in charge of this corporation. Just like if you know, I came to you and said, I want you to invest in my company, I'm gonna have a board in place that's gonna help make decisions and govern this company. These companies are governed by their own set of bylaws. And when you buy into this company, you're issued shares. Now, we don't call them shares, we call them unit factors, but that's effectively what they are. And to make a level and even playing field, every one of these companies is made up of 10,000 shares. So there's 10,000 unit factors in every condominium in Alberta. Now, those shares are divided among the number of units in the development. You could have hundreds of units in the development. You can have, well, the, the lowest you could have is two. You can't have a condominium with less than two units, uh, but hypothetically, you could have two units with equal number of shares, so each shareholder has 5,000 unit factors. Um, when I talk to my clients about the fact that they're buying into a, a business, the one thing that I tell them is you, you have to make sure that this business is healthy. For this, again, in the same scenario that if I came to you and said, I want you to invest in my company, you would ask me questions about my company. Where, where am I spending my money? What let's do my bank? What, let's let's see, see a balance yeah. sheet. What yeah, does absolutely. your bank account actually look yeah. like? Who's in charge of this thing? How do they make decisions? Why do they make the decisions that they make, right? This is absolutely no different. Just people don't tend to look at it that way. They think that they're just buying a home, which they are, or they're maybe buying an investment property. But ultimately what you're doing is you're buying into a company and for better or for worse, your fortunes are gonna be tied to that company. So if it's a poorly run company, you can expect that you're not gonna be getting a good rate of return on your investment. If it's a well-run company, then it stands to reason your investment could grow and could foster because people are making good decisions around the company that you've bought into. So there's an added layer that doesn't exist when you're talking about single family ownership because of the fact you're now buying into this, this corporation, this company that exists. Perfect, so, so take us through, because you've alluded, or you've talked about unit factors a few times Yes. Now. Why should people care about their unit factors? There, I'd say there's three basically primary things that unit factors will more or less dictate. Um, well, th they're guaranteed to dictate your voting rights. So the number of shares you own in this company dictates your share of the vote. So for example, if a corporation wanted to do something like change its bylaws, the board of directors can't do that by itself, okay? They need to pass what's called a special resolution. In order to pass a special resolution, you need 75% of the unit owners who make up at least 75% of the unit factors, the shares of the company, to vote in favor of the change. So your shares play into to, to voting rights as per your percentage of ownership in that corporation. The other things that they most commonly dictate though are your condo fees, and if there's ever a special assessment, which is a cash call, your shares will generally dictate that as well. Now, they don't have to, sorry, one question. Okay. Go ahead. If somebody has, I think before you said that there was, each one had 10, each condominium had 10,000, and that you know each unit would be given, call it 5,000, you might be getting to this. I just have literally no idea, which is why I'm asking. So. Would it be based off of square footage then? So would a penthouse have more, would a penthouse have more units? Okay, so um, it's up to the developer to decide how they want to allocate unit factors. There's, no, there's nothing in the Condominium Property Act that says this is how a developer has to do it. However, since September of 2000, they have to put a statement on the condo plan that says this is how we did it. Okay, so mm -hmm. there's nothing that says how you have to do it but you have to put a statement that says, this is how we did it. Okay. So most of the time, where I would say it's, it's often the case that, that size dictates the number of unit factors. So okay. in, in a lot of cases, in a lot of condos, the larger units do have a higher unit factor, okay? But that's not the only way that they do it. Sometimes they do it on perceived maintenance costs. 
So for example, if you live in a, kind of getting a bit off the cuff here, but if you live in a development that's a bare land unit and you know, cutting the grass and shoveling the snow is part of the, um, the requirement of the, of the corporation itself, they may assign larger unit factors to the units that they assume where the maintenance costs are going to be higher, right? But it could also be done on the basis of, you know, view or anticipated resale value or just because we felt like doing it this way. Or sometimes it's just yeah. on the basis of equality, right? And the unit factor could mean that you have to pay more for your condo fees if condo fees are based on it. But if then, but then if voting is based off of it, does that also mean that you'd have a higher value of your vote because you have more voting units than the person next door who has less than? Potentially, yes. So um, again, when we talk about condominiums, again, most people think of a high-rise apartment building. What we're seeing, a, a big shift that I see in our market right now is we're getting a lot of these really small developments that are four units. So um, there are a lot of inner city developers right now who are, they're buying up bungalows on corner lots. They're knocking down the bungalow and they're building four townhouses uh, usually with a detached parking structure that has four garage bays in it. But they're doing it as a condominium. Now, it stands to reason that if they did it on the basis of equality and every single owner got 2,500 unit factors, well, then you need three out of the four to vote in favor of you know, passing that special resolution. But it's not always done on the basis of equality. So you could have a scenario where, say, the two end units, because they might be slightly larger, have 3,000 unit factors each, whereas the two interior units have 2,000 unit factors each, or I'll give you maybe a better example would be, let's say one of the, let's say it's 2,500, 2,000, 2,000, and then say 3,500. Well, the reality is three out of four of those unit owners could vote in favor of the change, but they don't make up 75% of yeah. the unit factors until that fourth person comes yeah. on board, right? right. So the developers, I don't think oh, really consider the, the ramifications of the allocation sometimes. Yeah. I think it's sometimes that they do, but, um, huh. but yeah, so, you're going back to what I was saying before about most of the time they're going to dictate your condo fee. What the act says though is that the bylaws of the corporation can set out another mechanism to dictate condo fees. So it doesn't have to be done on the basis of unit factor, which is why I would caution agents to, to just don't make that a blanket statement, right? Don't just say to your clients, oh, don't worry, it's always done on the basis of unit factor. Because until you get the bylaws and you actually read them, you don't know if that's factual. And the same thing goes for a cash call. So if there's you know, a deficiency and they need to make up the deficiency, they're gonna go to all the shareholders of the corporation, they're gonna say, we need money. And in most cases, your uh, percentage of the cash call is dictated by the number of shares that you own in the condo. But again, it's not guaranteed that that's gonna be the, the mechanism that they use. What happens if, sorry, I should probably just like leave this interview. Um, what happens <laughs> if, so what happens if there's- We've got a lot of questions like, to go through. I know, I know, I know just, this is my last one. <laughs> so if there's, if, the 25% of the people vote and like the entire roof collapses and there isn't enough in the reserve fund for it and this person's like, I don't have the money, would they actually be forced to sell because they couldn't afford to live there anymore? So we're talking about a couple different things because to fix the roof, we don't need a special resolution. Um, that would be left up to the board of directors, sorry, the board of directors to make a decision that they felt was in the best interest of all of the owners. But boards have somewhat of a thankless job. Um, they in some cases will handcuff some unit owners who can't financially afford to pay the cash call and in some cases people have had to walk away from their units because they can't afford to. Or the person may choose to borrow the money to pay that cash call but now they've indebted their unit and that potentially makes it less saleable in the future because a prospective buyer 
may be asked to take on the debt or you know the owner may have to pay that debt out upon sale there's like there's num numerous different ways oh, that, that can happen fascinating. i won't ask yeah. any more questions <laughs> okay. interesting though like that's a big deal it's a huge deal that's why we are doing this interview it's i get it now that's a big deal <laughs> it's a really big deal okay go ahead Lance. let me ask you one more spin-off question on the um the 75 percent is that in the act or is that a bylaw it's in the act. in the act in the act yeah. um doors and windows who's yes. responsible the answer is you don't know and what I mean by that is, at the time that you're showing the unit, you have no idea. We as agents love to make general statements yep. about, you know, your client <laughs> will say, well, who's responsible for the doors and the windows? And you want to look good, so you're like, ah, don't worry, the corporation will cover it. You have no idea. Um, the way that the act is set up is that if it's a conventional condominium unit, so again, it's a three-dimensional cube, cue that uh, whatever graphic yeah, yeah, department the, the, is going to happen. Virtual reality graphic. Here's your three-dimensional yeah, cube you. that exists in space. <laughs> so if it's a three-dimensional cube that exists in space and the doors and the windows are on the boundary of the unit, by definition, they're common property and therefore they're the responsibility of the corporation. However, if you're talking about a bare land unit and the doors and the windows are on the interior of the boundary of the unit, because again, the bare land unit is the dirt, right? So whatever's built inside the dirt, you know, the boundary of the dirt, then by definition, they're the, the responsibility of the unit owner because they're part of the unit. When I say that you have no idea though, when you talk about a bare land unit, so even though that by definition, they're the responsibility of the unit owner, many, many bare land condominiums have something called managed property. Managed property is property that falls in the boundary of the unit, so it's owned by the unit owner, but it's the responsibility of the corporation for maintenance and upkeep. That could include everything from the roof, the siding, the numbers on the outside of the house, the lights, the garage door, the driveway, the grass, the um, windows and the doors, etc. Likewise, you can have a scenario where even though you're talking about a conventional, even though the windows and the doors are on the boundary of the units, the corporation could pass a special resolution, so 75 and 75, which transfers responsibility back to the owner to replace their individual doors and windows. Now, there are some general sort of rules that apply. When you're talking about a high-rise building, it's generally not going to be the case that the owner has to replace their own doors and windows because yeah. it's probably not feasibly possible. The windows, it's like... Correct, yeah. right? Um, so generally speaking, in a high-rise, it's almost always going to be the corporation's responsibility to, to maintain an upkeep, right? But the reality is at the time you're showing the unit, you probably have no idea. You're going to have to look in the bylaws. You're going to have to look on the CAD sheet, which I know is something else you wanted to touch yep. on. Um, if they've done it properly uh, and they've transferred responsibility from the corporation back to the owner, there should be a registration on the, on the CAD sheet or on the plan which shows that the windows and the doors are now the responsibility of the unit owner. Yeah, so special assessment or special resolution. Correct. So um, you, you need to investigate mm. further before you say, you know, this is going to, for sure the corporation is going to take care of this or for sure they're your responsibility. You have to investigate further before you can make that statement. You can speak in generalities, but you got to be careful with what you say. I'll just give a quick example. I had a client who, a townhouse complex, they were about to, they needed to replace some of the units, needed their doors and windows replaced. Uh, but not all of them, yep. depending on which side the sun was facing yep. and things like that. And so they were going to do a blanket special assessment. Yep. And instead of doing that, they did a special resolution yep. that said, okay, it's now the responsibility of the owners so that the people that don't have to replace, don't have to replace, and went from there. Awesome. And you can take it even, I know you want to nope. get through all these questions, but you can take it even one step further and say, you know, do I have to pay for it or do I not? The reality is you're paying for it. Yeah. It's just, are you paying for it in one lump sum or are you paying, uh, you know, a, because... If it's the corporation's responsibility and they know that, then when they have their reserve fund study done, which again, I know we're going to chat about, but 
you know, there will be an allocation made from your condo fee that goes to replacing the doors and the windows at some point in the future. So you're still paying for it. Yeah. You're just paying for it in small monthly yeah. increments instead of getting a $10,000, $20,000 bill to do all of your doors and your windows, right? So you're not absolved of this responsibility. It's not like money grows on trees in the garden of the condominium. <laughs> yeah. You still have to pay for it. Uh, it's just how are they collecting their money? One lump sum or a little bit at a time? Yeah. Right. Got it. Um, CAD sheet. Yes. Let's talk about that. You just mentioned it. Why is it important? So every, every, t uh, sorry, every unit within a corporation will have a title. The best way to describe a CAD sheet, it is, it's the title for the corporation itself. So if there's any legal action against the corporation, they're being sued, there's Liz Pendens, there's a caveat on there, that, will, that type of stuff will show up on a CAD sheet. Um, in addition, I talked about you know, the special resolution, right? So if there's been a resolution to change the responsibility of the doors and the windows back to the unit owners, that type of stuff is going to show up on the CAD sheet. In addition, you're going to find common things like a change of the board of directors. So, you know, if they're doing their job properly, the board, every year after their AGM, should be registering the new directors on their CAD sheet. So I could pull that document if I wanted to and I could find out who's running this company this year, right? right? In the same way that, again, if I'm coming to you to invest in my company, you're going to want to know who who's on my board, who's the board president, what experience they have, et cetera. Are you now, allowed to talk to them? It depend, you're not not allowed to talk to them, but there is a gatekeeper in some cases, and the gatekeeper is the management company. So you right. may not have direct access to the board. However, a lot of corporations will choose to be self-managed without management, which means you may have to deal directly with the board. And some board presidents are phenomenal at what they do, and some are not. So it, you know, sometimes you have an interaction with them. In a lot of cases, you don't because of that gatekeeper. Right. Um, but the other thing that's important too on a CAD sheet is the bylaws. If the bylaws of a corporation change, they must be registered on the CAD sheet for them to be um, legally binding. You know, we have this idea of the mere principle of our land title system, the idea that what you see is, is a true reflection of what's actually there. So as a board, if we went through this process of changing our bylaws and, you know, it's like herding cats, but we get all of these people to vote for this change and we get 75% of the people who make up 75% of the unit factors to agree on it and we got you know, our new bylaws and they've been ratified, they've been passed, that's great, and I give them to you and you put them in your desk drawer and you're off to Mexico for four months and you forget to file them at land titles, they may not as well exist. Whatever's on that CAD sheet for bylaws is what is binding on that corporation. So that's the other thing you're going to need the CAD sheet for is it will lead you directly to the bylaws that you need. And, and realtors, as you're collecting documents, someone's like, here's the bylaws. Yep. And you're looking and be like, well, reference the, it. the date on this is yep. not matching the date of the new bylaws. You have no idea. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and many realtors don't know that if they have the up-to-date bylaws. And, and it happens more often than you think that I've been handed. So as a business practice for me, I will, when I'm writing an offer on a condominium purchase, I will pay the $10 at land titles to buy the bylaws because I know they're, they're the correct legally yes. binding bylaws. But I've had scenarios where I've been handed a copy of the bylaws from the seller's agent and I'm looking at the two of them and they're not the same. And then when I do some follow-up, it's, oh, well, you know, five years ago they circulated this set of bylaws to try to get it passed, but it never passed. Oh. And now my owner has kept it and now right. we gave that to you. So if I was going off of that information, oh. we're dealing in the incorrect information. Or builders with the proposed bylaws. Could be anything. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah Could it's be unbelievable. So, yeah. so pay the 10 bucks in my humble opinion, pay the 10 bucks, it's a cost of doing business, um, buy those bylaws off land titles so that you know you have the actual set. Should the seller's agent be doing their due diligence? Yeah, 100%, but mistakes get made and it's, you know, for $10, I would buy the bylaws, but that's a business choice, so. And CAD sheet, condominium additional plan sheet. 
Correct. Sorry, we didn't specify that. That's right. Yes. And yeah. it really should be called the CAPS sheet when you break yeah, that's it down. Right. That's but right. It, that's the CAD sheet. Yes. Yeah. And not one of the required mm. documents listed on the area forms. Uh, I uh, believe that it has now changed that it is did, a required. It is document. on there? I believe it never so. used to be. That's so correct. if it is, that's amazing because yeah. in my mind, it's required. 100%. Yeah. Yes. Like you're almost, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so Anyways. just to hammer that point home though, and this is, again, this is a business practice decision. If it's me and I'm representing either a buyer or a seller, I'm spending a minimum of $32 at land titles. That will get me my title, it'll get me my CAD sheet, it'll get me my bylaws, and the plan is two bucks. Doesn't matter if there's 30 pages in the plan or one page in the plan, it's always two dollars. If you want to save your two bucks, you can email helpdesk at kreb.ca and they will send you the plan for free. But That's right. At four in the morning when you're pulling your, well I guess spin's not open at four in the morning, bad example. Krebs not open all the time is what I'm trying to say. So minimum $32 will get you your title, your CAD sheet, your bylaws, and your plan. But then if you have additional titled areas, like titled parking or storage, you may have to buy other titles as well. That's right. But minimum, 32 cool. bucks. Yeah. I don't think Eldar or CARE offer those services, by the way. Fair. Uh, which is fine. Okay. Um, the reserve fund. Yes. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Study report plan. Okay. So... <clears throat> When you read the Condominium Property Act, here's what it says. Every five years, and they're changing this now to say five years or less, but let's go with five years. Every five years, they have to, they have to hire a qualified person, and they've just changed the parameters of a qualified person. So arguably, it's somebody with a background in um, appraisals or engineering, et cetera, depreciating costs of things. They come out and they prepare the study, okay? So, or they do the study. So the study is a physical site visit they go out, they make a list of all of the common property assets of the corporation. In the case of stuff that's managed property, they would include that as well. So again, it might be owned by the unit owner, but it's the responsibility of the corporation to maintain the roof, the windows, the doors, et cetera. So they make a laundry list of all of these things that the corporation is responsible for. They're gonna put on their list, this is the current age of that asset, this is the um, pro projected or projected replacement date of that asset and here's what we project it's going to cost to replace that asset. So they do up a table and they develop a report from their study. So the, the site visit is the study, then they develop a report and they give that back to the condominium corporation. The third and final step which almost never gets done is that the corporation is supposed to develop a plan. So the corporation is supposed to take the findings of the report and say okay we agree with this, we agree with this, we agree with this, here is our plan to make sure that our um, reserve fund is fully funded or nearly fully funded, or we disagree with all of this and this is what we're gonna do in lieu. Right? Are they allowed to say that? Sure, but most of the time they never bother to take that. It's not, it's not a binding document. It's not a binding document. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a plan prepared by somebody who's got, or sorry, it's a study prepared by somebody or a report prepared by somebody who's got a background in this, but it's up to the corporation to develop a plan. Right. But in 99% of the cases, they don't take that third and final step what you end up getting as an agent is not a plan that they've come up with. They just send you a copy of the study, because that's all, or sorry, the report, because that's all that exists. So then you're left to say... You have to make assumptions. Correct. How, how is the corporation actually interpreting this information? Are they following what was recommended in the study, or the, sorry, following what was recommended in the report, or are they doing something totally different? Um, in some cases, corporations will actually put together a plan, which is awesome. Um, but in most cases, as an agent, when you're buying, you don't end up getting a plan. Or if you're helping a seller, they, don't, they can't give you a plan because there is no plan. They're just following what was there in the report. So do, you sorry, so do you typically just, like if you're talking to a client, would you make the assumption that 
based off of the report, all this money is going to have to be spent, and this is where we're going to end up. So if, you, if you're offering some sort of advice on what's in the fund and what's going to have to come out of the fund, like do you interpret that and then give advice based off of that, or do you just say, we have no idea, but this is what the report says? So in Alberta, um, Rika is, and REX are very clear that we should not be interpreting condominium documents on behalf of our clients. In British Columbia, it's different. In British Columbia, as a real estate agent, you're expected to do that as part of your level of service. But in Alberta, you're not expected to do that. In fact, you're told not to do that. Um, so what I would recommend agents do is don't make interpretations of information that you may or may not understand. Have a condo doc review specialist handle that on behalf of your client. Now, the reality of that industry is it's not governed. There is no license to become a condominium document reviewer. There is no accreditation that exists. There is no governing body. There is no oversight. It's just somebody else making assumptions Correct. based off of experience. Correct. So now after this interview, you know a lot about condominiums. You can start holding yourself out. and You're going to start doing condominium document reviews if you want to, right? So you can fire up a website and pay me X number of dollars, 500, 600 bucks, and I'll do the review for you. That's literally, there is no oversight. So I would say to everybody, when you're recommending people to do condo doc reviews, like any other third-party practitioner, you're going to recommend a home inspector or a lawyer, or what, do your due diligence, right? Yep. Make sure this person actually has a background that's going to qualify them to do a, a satisfactory review of these documents. Um, because again, you can be held accountable for the recommendations that you make. So is the system mm -hmm. broken in that sense? In my opinion, it is. Because again, on one half, we're told as the professional, don't do this recommend this third party, but there's no oversight for those third parties. Yeah. Like they're so, also not professionals. Well, I wouldn't say that they're not professionals. Some of them are very they're not, good. But they're not, they're not, a, well, as far as like an accredited, like fair. realtor license, like you did this, this edification, you're governed by something to make sure that you like are up to date on. There's not that no. check mark. That's no. what I meant by professional fair. was not the right word. Fair. But yeah, so the bottom line is make sure you're very cognizant of who you're recommending and what their level of expertise is and you know, just be careful. But again, so to go back to your original question, I'm not digging into the documents necessarily and making recommendations to my clients. Um, I could tell you though what a reviewer would do and what a reviewer is going to do is they're going to look at the report that was prepared because again, there's likely not an actual plan that exists, but they're going to look at the report and the last page of the report is going to be a table that has a minimum of 25 years worth of projections on it, right? So the, the, the report has to be for a minimum of 25 years. Um, what has also changed or, or will be changing is that that report also has to encapsulate potential maintenance that exceeds that 25 year limit because for a long time, reserve fund planners uh, would only, they would stop at 25 years. So anything beyond that scope would not be in that report. So then five years down the road when you get your next report done, We've now grabbed stuff that was 30 years out, five That's years right. behind, and now you're encapsulating that. So now it looks, you know, anyway. So they prepare this report in this table at the end. So what a reviewer will, is going to do is they're going to look at the projections that were made by the author of the report as far as you should be allocating this much per year to stay on top of these future anticipated costs. And by this date, you should have this much in the bank account. And then they're going to look at the budget for the corporation and they're going to say, okay, the corporation is projecting that they're going to allocate this much money in the following year. How does that line up with the assumptions in the report? In addition, you're going to look at the financial statements to say there's this much money currently in the reserve fund. How does that line up with the projections that were, that were delivered in the report? Are they the same? Are they different? Generally speaking, they don't have more money than they're supposed to. Um, they often have less. How much less? 
And then for the client, it becomes a, an educated decision about what type of a risk are they willing to take on yeah. here, right? Yep. So again, if there's not enough money in the bank account, they're gonna come to all the shareholders looking for money. And so if you're a shareholder, that's where you get these special assessments that come from. Either unexpected things happen, which you really can't predict and yep. budget for, um, but you can budget for poor mate, for you know poor operations and poor governance. So you you might we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but you might get a board whose mandate is that they want to keep condo fees low. Now that's in their best interest, but you're selling the future of the corporation by doing that. So if if your report says you should be allocating one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, but in you know the board's wisdom. We only need $50,000 a year, so we'll shortchange $100,000, which is going to put money back in everyone's pocket, and then we look like the hero because we're keeping condo fees low. The reality is then when I go to sell my unit six years from now, we're $600,000 below where we should be because we haven't been allocating what we're supposed to yep. be. So it's great that my condo fees are low, but now I'm taking a bath on the sale of my unit yeah. because we're underfunded by a landslide. So, so one of the questions was that, was our, our, condo, our high condo fees red flag? So I mean, I guess, I guess, in, I, I, so maybe in some ways, yes, but in some ways, it's like, well, you could also ask, are really low, con are really low condo fees a yeah, red flag? Yeah, for sure. And so, then um, Lindsay and I talked about this briefly yesterday, and one of the things that I had said was, in the absence of value, price is always a concern. And what I mean by that is, there are some developments in some buildings that are very amenity rich. They have a swimming pool, they have a sauna, they have an exercise room, they have a you know, a common meeting, uh, like an owner's lounge security. with a balcony, what security, yeah. concierge, yeah. all this stuff. If you're getting a lot for what you're paying for, then high condo fees may not be a red flag, right? Because it costs money to run this corporation. And again, money doesn't grow on trees in the backyard. So if they are spending a lot of money, meaning you're getting a lot of stuff for your ownership in this corporation, high condo fees may not be a concern. You may want that lifestyle, right? I mean, again, you can pay your condo fees at $750 a month, uh, or you can pay $400 a month and buy a gym pass down the road for $200 a month. Or, you know, again, yeah. you're paying $750 a month, but your gym pass is included in that because you have a fitness facility in your, in your um, building, right? Condo fees also vary wildly depending on whether or not utilities are included. So in some corporations, your heat, your electricity, and your water are all rolled into your condo fee. So again, the high condo fee may not be a red flag. Now, if they're artificially high, that's where it's a concern. So if you're not getting a lot, but you're paying a lot, that can be a concern because the question becomes, why is it so expensive to live here when I'm not getting much out of this? And one of the answers could be, could be, we've been deficient on our reserve fund. We haven't put enough money away. We now know right. that. And so now we're trying to slowly build it up over time. So rather than do a cash call, we're just going to increase condo fees by 200 bucks a month until we can top up the reserve fund to where we should be. So the, again, the answer really lies in what are you getting? The low condo fees, again, that's another one where developers historically have advertised really low condo fees because it's great to say as a developer, ah, your condo fees are 200 bucks a month or 150 bucks yeah. a month or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, but the developer at the time that they're building a brand new building and they're doing pre-sales, they don't have a reserve fund study done. So now they sell the building, all these new owners move in, they form their board, they get a reserve fund study done, and lo and behold, we're not allocating anywhere near the amount of money we're supposed to be allocating. False economy. 100%. Yeah. So now, you know, what I would always say to people buying brand new is, enjoy your low condo fees. <laughs> but here's what it's probably going to be in the next three to five years, right? Now again, there's some changes that have happened to the Condominium Property Act that are trying to protect against that. 
So uh, a developer now is required to, to deliver a budget to a prospective buyer. If they miss the budget by more than 15%, the corporation can charge them back the amount that they missed. So they're allowed to be 15% under budget, but if they're more than 15% under budget, the corporation can go after the developer. Now, there's pitfalls in that too, I understand. But the way that the legislation is now trying to protect buyers of new units. Putting a bit of accountability on correct. it. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, okay, so we answered a few things here uh, in a lot of that, which is awesome. Uh, switch gears to age restrictions. Yeah. yeah. Um, are age restrictions legal? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened, uh, so July, sorry, January the 1st of 2018, so this is a year and a half old now, the human rights legislation in Alberta changed. And in one breath, they say that we've completely outlawed age-restricted buildings. But then in the next breath, they say, but we're, we're prepared to allow people to live in 55 plus communities. So it's illegal, but it's not. Yeah. Um, so here's the lay of the land, is that, you know, like I said, they've, they've said we're gonna outlaw age-restricted condominiums. However, it, seniors only housing can be a minimum of 55 plus. Now they've given everybody a, a, a grace period to get used to these changes, okay? Because right now you have a lot of buildings that are 18 plus. Right. You know, I know of one that's 28 plus. 28 seems like an odd number to me, but anyway, it's 28 plus, right? So rather than make it change overnight, they've given everyone 15 years to get compliant with these changes. So on December the 31st of 2032, you have to have changed your bylaws, which means on that date, you're either no age restriction at all, or you're a minimum of 55 plus. So it could be 55 plus, 60 plus, 65 plus, 70 plus, you get the point, right? Now, you have to do the math then as an agent, right? Because if you have a client who's currently, you know, 30 years old, and they're buying into a development where there's an age restriction on it, and let's say that age restriction is 30 years, so they, meet, they currently meet that age restriction, well, you know that in less than 15 years, it's hypothetically possible that the age restriction in that building goes up to 55 plus, right? Um, likewise, you could have people who are in their 20s, maybe they're 25, 26, 27, 28, they've told you, you know, we want to live in an 18 plus building because we're never going to have children and we don't want to live in a building where there are children. Well, that corporation has a decision coming in the next 13 and a half years. And that decision is, do we bump it up to 55 plus, which is probably unlikely if yeah. they're currently 18 plus, more likely they're just going to scrap the age restriction altogether. Yeah. So, you know, and again, like anything else in life, there are going to be, you know, it's a standard bell curve, right? I mean, there's going to be a handful of corporations who understand that these changes are coming and are actually going to deal with this now. The vast majority of them are going to wait till, you yep. know, Christmas on, you know, That's right. December uh, of 2020 20 or 32, and then they're going to worry about it, right? Yeah. But as an agent, just be aware that they're not completely outlawing age restrictions. What they're saying is you can have seniors-only communities, which again are minimum of 55 plus, and they're giving everyone this grace period. Now, the final point on all of this is I, I get this question all the time from agents. Agents love this idea of grandfathered. <laughs> and, it, and it comes from you know, <laughs> secondary suites and yes. everything. Oh, it's yes. grandfathered. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. No. If the bylaws change and it says you have to be 55 years old to live here yes. and you're currently you know, 46 years old, then you don't meet the age restriction. Now, is it possible that they will grandfather in those people? Yeah, it's possible. But it's not a guarantee. People aren't guaranteed to be grandfathered for things, right? So yeah. again, just be very cognizant of the fact that this is coming down the pipe. Again, the legislation's already changed, but they've given everyone this 15-year grace period to get compliant with it. 
So again, if, you, if you're dealing in age-restricted buildings or age-restricted developments right now, start doing the math and start trying to project how this is gonna impact your client. I mean, the other thing to consider too is, the reason, generally speaking, that age-restricted um, condominiums are still allowed to exist or will still be allowed to exist, there's a component of, I'm a senior, I only wanna live with other seniors. But the reality is what it does is it makes things more affordable. Because when you restrict age, you restrict your buyer pool. So it's simple supply and demand. There's less demand because there's less people that meet that age criteria, right? So it keeps seniors only housing a little bit more affordable for people. But if you mm. bought in when there was a 30 plus age restriction and now it's moved to 55 plus, oh, yeah. your oh, value yeah. is gonna go down because there's less demand on your unit because there's less, yeah. you know, so there's that side of it too, right? And is the big thing about that, the human rights and was it kids? Like basically people are upset that they were told they can't have kids living there, was that? It was, it was deemed to be discriminatory to discriminate against people based on age is basically what it boiled down to. But then again, in the same breath, they turned around and said, but we can discriminate on age as long as you're 55 plus. Yeah. yeah. So in some cases, so imagine yeah. you're the 25% that lost out on the vote sure. to make your unit sure. 18 plus. Correct. Now I do have a kid that's five. Yes. That kid can't live there. Yes. Yeah. And, and so you were in the minority, you lost, and now yep. you have to move. Yep. Um, and, and just to be clear on that, I am 39. I want to buy a place for my parents that are 60 plus. Yep. Um, I can own a 55 plus unit, but I can't live there. Is that correct? Uh, it depends on how the bylaws are structured because the bylaws could be structured that you cannot own a unit, but more often it's, it's occupancy. Right. So the occupant of a unit. But then right. again, the bylaws will sort of define what an occupant is. So some bylaws might say an occupant is somebody who spends you know, um, more than 30 days a year on the, in, in the unit or on the common property right. of the corporation. Because you can visit right? your parents. Well, again, this is the thing, That's right? right is yeah. if, you, if say you're a grandparent and you want your grandchildren to be able to come and spend the night with you, you know, generally, and again, this is generalities we're talking, but you'd have to investigate the bylaws, but generally the bylaws will, will allow for that. However, if you're a grandparent and you want your grandchild to come and live with you for July and August while they're no longer in school, well, that person, as according to the bylaws, could be an occupant at that point, which right. means they're in violation of the bylaws, right? So it's a nuance that you have to investigate because again, it, they're all these little corporations that are independently yep. run and they're independently governed and they all have their own bylaws and their own rules. And you know, so you have to investigate as an agent, obviously, how that's gonna impact your client's potential use and enjoyment, so. I wanna ask this question because I think we were talking about this yesterday again is that the role of the management company in decision-making yeah. and who's to blame yeah. when something goes wrong versus the role of the board yeah. um, in terms of who's to blame. The condo fees are too high. We gotta fire the management company. Yeah. Well, you know, let's hold on a second <laughs> yeah, here. Right. Um, okay, so who sits on the condo board and what is their role and what is their sort of power? Right, so generally speaking, the people that sit on condo boards are the people that accidentally show up for the AGM. <laughs> Sorry if you sit it's on a true. condo board, it's but it's true. It's true. In yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of cases, it's true. Um, you know, there will be an AGM that's called. Uh, you know, a handful of owners will generally turn up. Now, you could have really good attendance at your AGM, but generally a handful of owners will turn up, and there will be this elections process that takes place, and so they will ask for volunteers to sit on the board, and everyone's going to stare at the floor, and then eventually, you know, you're going to feel weird and obligated, and you're going to put your hand up, and then boom, you're the president. Or, you know, you're on the board this that year. That is whatever, literally right? how my best friend just became the president of her kindergarten. Of course. Yeah. Of her preschool. Of course. Literally Nobody was wants like, to volunteer for no, anything. And then finally, it's like, yeah. they're not going to let us out yep. of this room exactly. until somebody does something. She's like, 
exactly. So, you know, and again, I'm being very facetious. I mean, some condo, condo boards truly are, um, you know, stocked with lawyers and uh, accountants and people that have some knowledge yeah. in these matters. But generally speaking, it's the common people that, you know, end up being on their condo board, right? Now, you can also have, depending on your bylaws, you can also have people outside of the condominium corporation potentially sit on your condo board as well, although it's a volunteer position, so it's not a really palatable option for most people, yeah. unless they have a vested interest <laughs> in this for some reason, right? What I say to that my owners... selfless ev deed. Ev oh, for sure. Like, quick, I know, I'm... Remember the Friends episode where Phoebe wanted to find a selfless deed, so she let a bee sting her? Yes. And then she realized that the bee died. But that was, it was like a whole episode of trying. I feel like you could volunteer on somebody else's condo board. I could, but I, I do have better things like to do. Selfless. Like, like, like keeping Phoebe's, bees. It would be that's right, like keeping bees. That's exactly bees. it. I will just let my bees sting me, and that's my selfless deed. That's right. Um, Pineapple. So... Uh, you've derailed my I'm so thought. sorry. No, you're all right. Okay, so the board, the we board. have it where people get elected. Um, they volunteer, they get elected, they're on the board. Talk about now what their decision-making role is. Okay. How, what powers are they bestowed with? Okay, so the, the board is charged with, um, number one, enforcing the bylaws of the corporation. They are, they are in, a, in, in a utopian, grand, you know, perfect world, what should happen is that you know, the best of the best, the most capable people end up on the board. They are elected from the common people. Uh, it's like electing a small government, right? So you all go to this meeting, you pick the best of the best, boom, you're on the board. Now, you're tasked with promoting our best interests as owners, right? So you're tasked with making sure you enforce the rules of the corporation. You're tasked with um, you know, signing authorities if you're the treasurer or the president of the board, right? Um, you know, you're tasked with keeping minutes of the board of directors for all the meetings that you have, right? Um, you're basically tasked with running this little company. However, most people who own a condominium also have a nine to five job and better things to do than run this little company. So rather than doing it themselves, they're gonna hire a management company who's then now tasked with doing this, right? The board can be held accountable for the management company because it stands to reason they've put them in place to oversee the yeah. you know, affairs of the corporation, right? And every board is gonna have a different level of involvement. There's gonna be some boards that are very um, responsive, very involved in the decision making. I know of another, um, because I know a couple of property managers, one of them has told me a story about one of the corporations he deals with. They meet yearly, so once a year, they call it a wine and sign. They show up, they sign their paperwork, they get drunk, and that's their meeting, okay? <laughs> now, it sounds great, Ooh. but if those were the only minutes you got as a prospective buyer that you met <laughs> once a, once a month for your, or once a year for your wine and sign, that's gonna be a bit of a tough sell for a buyer. Unless they're really into that, then maybe that's their jam. I don't know. Um, but again, the board's responsibility is to maintain and upkeep the common property of the corporation, uh, to preserve the integrity of the value of the units within the corporation. So again, they're tasked with this. They can be held responsible by the unit owners. And to your point, when we were discussing yesterday, condo fees are going up, fire the management company. Well, it's not the management company who's raising the condo fees, right? Things cost more every year. Yeah. So if you did a budget this year and your snow removal was $10,000, it stands to reason next year because of inflation, your snow removal is gonna be $11,000 you have to get that extra thousand dollars from somewhere. So you're gonna have to raise the condo fee because money in equals money out. It's a not-for-profit entity that they're running here. There's, like I said, there's no dividends that get paid out. Um, and they should not have additional money at the end of the, you know, once they've allocated their reserve fund allocation right. and they've paid all of their contractors and everything, it should just be a net playing field, right? So now the management company, one final thought on it. 
we as agents have an interesting role when it comes to the management company or the management company has an interesting role when it comes to us as an agent, right? Because we are not the client of the management company. We're not the owners. No, but we are going to rely on that management company to help us buy and sell real estate. That is a fact because the management company knows stuff that we need to know in order to do our job, but it's not that they don't want to share it with us. It's just we're not important to them, right? We are a Frankly, for most property managers, we are a burden to them. They don't want to pick up the phone and, hey, it's Ryan Smith, I'm a realtor on the other end, because it's probably it's an audible eye roll that happens on the other end of that telephone. I'll yep. create another realtor, right? So here's what I tell agents. It's like prison. You get one phone call, okay? <laughs> so have all your ducks in a row, have all your questions ready to go, and if you're lucky enough to get that person on the other end of the phone, you better get answers to all those questions. Because what will inevitably happen <laughs> is you'll like ask prison. three questions, then five minutes later, you'll go, oh, shit, I forgot to ask that. Then you're going to call them again, and then they're going to have to answer that question. And then they're going to call them a third time, and they're not going to answer. So then you're going to email them, and they won't answer that because they have better things to do than put up with you, right? <laughs> so like when you're going to call the management company, make sure you have all of the questions that you want answers to. Um, some property managers are phenomenal, and they're really good about working with agents. You'll actually find a lot of property managers, or some property managers, used to be real estate agents. So they get it, they understand why we need them. Um, but for a lot of property managers, we're just a huge burden on them. One other quick tip I would, and, and this is a practice that I subscribe to, I have uh, a stack of Tim Hortons or Starbucks cards, 15, 10 bucks, whatever. Every property management, every property manager that I deal with, quick note, $15 Starbucks card, out the door. Brilliant. Um, because it's Brilliant. a small group of people that, yep. that have this job, and you're going to run into that person again on oh, some yeah. other transaction. You take a huge company like First Residential, it's like they're, For sure. how many They probably have six managers, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and they manage, I don't know, hundreds of buildings probably, yeah. right? So, you know, again, they, they play a significant role in making our lives basically doable, quite frankly, for our transactions but we can be quite a big burden to them. And I think we have to remember that as an industry sometimes, so. Nice, that's really nice of you. Let's ask a, a, a closing question here, because I know this one's a bit bigger. Um, changes to the timing of the government regulations. Things. Yeah. What, what's happening there? Yeah, so, so we ran a course here, and I believe it was actually, I don't know if it was streamed live or was just available for, you know, you could watch it after the fact, but the whole, the whole course was predicated on what changes are happening on July the 1st of 2019. And we did that probably in the middle of June. That's right. And then about two weeks later, this, uh, this thing gets pushed out by area, this notification that, okay, the government has walked back the date on all of the changes that they just promised us for July, of, July the 1st of 2019. Prediction? Yes. That's going to be RECA rules on October 1st. You think so? Yes. Prediction. I don't know. It might be. Yeah. I mean, the biggest, change, the biggest change that most agents were excited for was changes to the costs of condominium documents. Right. Because this is right coming from now, the Alberta government. This is not sure. a retail. No, no, it's, sorry. It's, yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't an area decision. I guess I should clarify yeah, that. Yeah. So area was informing us as an industry of the changes at the right. Alberta. But I mean, really, when you boil it down, I mean, let's be honest, is it that surprising? Absolutely not. You have a brand new government in power now who, and every new government is gonna be skeptical about pushing out legislation of an outgoing government yep. until they know that they've vetted it and crossed their I's and dotted their T's, sorry, crossed their T's and dotted their I's, right? Yep. So it's not surprising, but it's disappointing, in large part because this particular change or these changes were targeted at making life better for consumers. Now, it's been, 
and honestly speaking, it's been frustrating as all hell for the past three years to try and teach condominium courses because these changes that have been rolled out to the Condominium Property Act and the regulation. So there's two different pieces of legislation, which we won't go into right now because that's a yeah. wormhole. But instead of making one date in history where they just said, you know, this is how it is today, this is how it's going to be tomorrow, they've done this over the course of about two years where they've rolled these changes out. So when you're teaching a course, you're constantly having to tell people, this is how it is today, but this is how it's going to be. This is how it is today, but this is how it's going to be. And it's frustrating for the student as well because they don't, they're trying to grasp what is today and what is tomorrow yeah. and how does this impact like, Am I putting that? like a calendar appointment in for like August 15th, like 9 a.m.? Like remember that this is, yeah. Right. So, so it's been frustrating that way. But anyway, we're, we're getting towards the end of this phased, you know, it's like barely blended condos, this phased rollout of these changes to the Condominium Property Act. But what was supposed to happen on, again, July the 1st of this year, was that condominium fees were going to be, or sorry, condominium documents were going to be capped. So right now, the way that it exists, still currently, because the government pushed this off, is that a, uh, a management company or a corporation can charge basically whatever they want for condominium documents. You want it fast? Yeah, you want it's it fast, a, and there's a, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll bump that up three times, yeah, right? triple the cost. And, yeah. you know, there, there is gouge, there's rampant gouging that exists when it comes to this stuff. So we talked before about a set of bylaws being $10 on spin. It's publicly available. Anybody can buy the bylaws of any corporation they want for 10 bucks. You just have to know what you're looking for. I have seen a property management company take a set of bylaws. They broke it into six parts, and they charged 30 bucks for each part. So for the full, complete set of bylaws, it's $180 for a $10 document that anyone can access publicly if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, it's gross. It's disgusting, right? Um, now, from the, from the standpoint of the management company, and I can understand this to a degree, some management companies have been really diligent and good about giving documents to their owners, but the owners don't know what to do with them and don't right. think they're important, so bang, they go into the recycling bin. Then when the owner goes to sell the unit, the management company says, well, there's a charge, we're gonna charge you, you know, 15 or $25 for every set of meeting minutes from the past year. Why the hell do I have to pay for that? Well, we gave them to you, where are they? I don't know, I threw them out. Well, that's why you have to pay for it, right? Like we're charging you to make up what we gave you in the first place. But not every management company does that. So a lot of management companies just don't give you any information and then charge you for the information when you need it. So, you know, for most sellers of a unit right now, you're probably averaging four to $600 for a complete set of documents um, in order to give them to the buyer so the buyer can go ahead and make a decision and hopefully buy your unit. The most I've ever heard is closer to 12, 1300, which is insane wow. to me. So what they're gonna do, or what they had proposed to do on July the 1st, is they're gonna cap every document at $10 unless you want it rush, okay? So rush is within three days or three business days. That was gonna be $30. So there's still gonna be money that's charged. Um, it's also important to understand that the standard delivery time, if you're just getting the standard document, is up to 10 days. Well, when you're in the middle of a business, or when you're in the middle of a real estate deal, right. 10 days probably isn't gonna cut it. You gotta, I can't, get, to, you gotta get to the I can't management hold this, the review right. company. I mean, I can't like hold gotta, this buyer off for 10 right. days yeah. until I can give them the documents and then they get another five days to review. Like, now our condition dates are three weeks long for condominium document review. So sellers are probably still gonna have to pay the rush fee to get deals done, but they're trying to ease the burden on sellers uh, when it comes to their condominium documents. So again, unfortunately, the government has pushed that off so that they can, in their words, review for excessive red tape. Um, and the new proposed date of these changes is gonna be January the 1st of 2020. 
So they basically bumped it six months so they could do their due diligence to make sure that as an incoming government, they're comfortable with everything, which is really what it boils down to. Looking for excessive red tape is just, in my opinion, government jargon for we want to make sure we're not going to get burned by this because this was the outgoing government's decision. So, And just a, a note to realtors, it's like your clients, the second you list the property, there's certain documents that aren't going to change even Correct. if that property sits in the market for 90 days. Correct. Uh, there are some that are, the balance, the reserve fund, things like that. So those got to be timely documents. Yep. However, things like the, the past 12 months of meeting minutes, that's the 12th, that, you know, that's yes. not going to change. Yes. So, um, your reserve fund study that's done once every five years, if it was just done, it's not going to change. That's right. So there are a lot of documents that you can counsel your clients to buy up front right. for the cheaper fee because it doesn't matter if it takes them 10 days because you right. may not get an offer in those first 10 days on market anyway. Uh, so I would call those sort of the static documents, but some of them are dynamic and they're time sensitive. So a disclosure letter, which is going to speak to all of the written demands on the corporation, you know, uh, is there any structural deficiencies that the corporation is aware of? If you try and give a buyer a disclosure letter that's three months old, yeah. that's not going to fly because that's who right. knows what's happened in three months, right? That's so right. again, those more dynamic documents, you'll probably have to pay the rush service for, but you can definitely help save your clients money by getting those static documents mm. up front for the cheaper fee and then just buying the dynamic documents or the time sensitive documents when and if you need them. The one final thing I'll say about all this though is it's like the windows and the doors. You're going to pay for it. It just depends on how. So what's going to happen, because I've already seen it, is that management companies are going to charge more for their services their because fees. the government has now taken uh, away a revenue stream, yeah. right? Yep. So the government took away this revenue stream from them. Mm. They're not just going to say, okay, fine, we'll just restructure our entire business and lose that money. They're just going to charge more for their service. So instead of paying a lump sum as a unit owner when you go to sell, you're going to pay higher condo fees on a monthly basis because the management fee has gone up. And there's a realtor um, that I know quite well, and he was kind enough to share with me meeting minutes from his corporation in Edmonton, and that's exactly what they did. They upped their management fee by about 30%, and so now they're paying 30% more to the management company uh, instead of having to pay one lump sum when they go to buy their documents. So it, it's same as when you're money. Goes. You're going to pay for it. It just depends how. Wow. Yeah. Ryan. Awesome. He's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> so smart. Yeah. Thank you. You're we, welcome. We, thank you so much. Your your knowledge on this is is outstanding. Far surpasses my own in yeah. terms of particular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in terms of the details of things, and and it's so awesome to have a specialist like yourself on the show. Uh, thank you so much. And there was even some questions we didn't get to. We might need to do a little sub, you know, uh, a ten minute sort of teaser trailer or, or something as a sub event in, in so the future. Good. So thank you so much again for giving of your time. Thank you. Thanks for having um, me, guys. Thank you. Uh, when, when are you going to start Condo Doc Reviews? Yeah, when was that? Honestly, was that? I feel like it's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, I want to do it. I want to remember vet your third-party practitioners. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, she's a Smith, and yeah. I strongly support her. That's right. She's doing Condo Doc Reviews. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, make sure you guys subscribe uh, to our podcast, uh, CI Realty Business Mastery. Uh, SphereRealtyBusinessMastery.com on uh, the podcast wherever your podcast visit our Instagram page and our Facebook page and Ryan thank you so much again buddy thanks for having me thanks Ryan awesome. have a great day everybody take care